Well, good morning. How's everyone doing? We're doing the book of Hosea. Everybody's favorite, most well-known book of the Bible, right? It's the book that everybody knows and loves. How many of you have ever heard a pastor preach through the book of Hosea? One person. Okay. How many of you could name the century that Hosea is referring to? Eight to ninth? Oh, you guys looked on the handout. By the way, you should have a handout. If you don't have a handout, make sure you grab one. Okay? I bring that up because Hosea is one of those books that very few people really know about. You get to the book of Hosea and you read through it and you're like, okay, that was great, but I have no idea what it's talking about. Um, it's a different time period. We don't understand the time period. And our goal this morning, we're going to do an introduction. Our goal this morning is to try to give you some of that basic information that you need just to be able to begin to understand Hosea. And we're going to look in the text, and then we're going to talk about the political history of Israel, which is where your handout becomes very, very helpful. The front of the handout I'm not going to discuss because it's kind of plain and simple, and I don't want to read it to you. You guys can read it on your own. Um, It's the back of the handout that is going to become really important later. On the back, you'll see a chart with kings of the north and the kings of the south, I'm going to be reviewing the political history of Israel. And this is going to be very helpful for you to keep track of where we are. In the Attributes of God class, I literally had over 1,400 slides to put up. In this today, I think I have six. And two of those are blank slides. So (laughs) this is going to be very helpful to follow along as I name the As I talk about individual kings, you can just look on the chart and see what king we're talking about and what kingdom they're part of. But we'll get to that towards the second half of the class. All right, we have 12 weeks to cover 14 chapters. So some weeks we're going to cover more than a chapter, and some weeks we're just going to do one chapter. Today we're doing the introduction. And as we come to the book of Hosea, I want you to understand that Within the book, there are two truths, two major truths that Hosea really wants you to see. And as you read and as you study the book of Hosea, you need to be seeing these two things. The first one is the wickedness of the human heart. The wickedness of the human heart. Hosea's writing to the northern kingdom of Israel. It's a nation that's in spiritual and moral freefall. They're actually really close to the bottom. They're engaging in idolatry. They're worshiping Baal and calling Baal Yahweh. And Hosea calls their idolatry harlotry. And he relates them to being unfaithful. And he uses some of the most stark and shocking language to describe and picture their spiritual unfaithfulness he's actually really graphic about it. He's not impure about it, but it's very graphic. And he does this, he explains these sins so graphically and he's so descriptive with it because he wants the sinfulness of the human heart to be the backdrop. He wants to paint it as black as he can because the sins that are being committed in Israel are not being committed by pagan nations. They're being committed by God's own people the people who should know Yahweh, they're the ones doing this. And he wants them to see how dark and wicked their hearts are. That's the first truth. Second truth is the shocking and astounding love of God. 
the backdrop of the sinful heart is nice and dark so that the light of God's love shines nice and bright. That's the point he wants to make. They are unfaithful. God is faithful. They don't show their love to God, but God shows astounding love back to them. His grace and his love and his faithfulness are on full display as you go through this book. There are some weeks we're just going to be talking about the judgment and the sin. And there's other weeks that judgment and sin is going to be contrasted with God's love. But you need to see both of them because he puts both of them there to be as stark and as um, clear as he can, he can make them. Okay? Um, today we're doing the introduction, so I want to start not with a chapter. I want to start with one verse. Hosea 1.1. 1, 1. And from this one verse, we're just going to use this as a basic outline to fill out some of the information we need to know about the book of Hosea. Hosea 1.1. 1, 1. It says, The word of the Lord, which came to Hosea, the son of Bari, during the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. That's a really exciting verse, is it not? But it is going to make a good outline for us so we can understand what's going on and what is the time frame, what's going on in Israel, where is Hosea, and what is he writing about. And he starts his book with a statement, the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord came. He doesn't say how the word of the Lord came. He doesn't say if it was a dream. He doesn't say if God spoke to him. He doesn't say if he had a vision. He just says the word of the Lord came to him. He doesn't even mention the circumstances. He doesn't tell us when the word of the Lord came to him. He doesn't tell us if it all came to him at once or if it came to him over a period of years. Those things scholars are still debating. But he uses this phrase, the word of the Lord. Can, I, I want some people who can read some scripture. Um, do I have some volunteers? Autumn, would you do Jeremiah 1.1? Mike, would you do Jeremiah 1.4? Anyone else? Uh, Percy, Ezekiel 1.3? Anyone else? Joy, would you do uh, Joel 1.1? This is a very common way for prophets to open up their book, is by saying the word of the Lord. Jeremiah 1.1. 1, 1. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, of the priests who were in Anathoth, in the land of Benjamin. And 1.4. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying. The word of the Lord came to me, saying. Ezekiel 1.3. So the word of the Lord came to him, but there he actually gives some circumstances. Uh, Joel 1.1. 1, 1. Thank you. Thank you all for reading. Um, all of those are put there so that you understand that what follows, not just chapter 1, but chapter 1 through chapter 14, is not the musings of Hosea. This is not Hosea's opinion. This is a message that God has given to Hosea, and he has Hosea deliver that message. What follows is a message from God. 
it is interesting that there are other prophets who didn't use this phrase, like Isaiah. Isaiah is not him just conveying a message, but he says the vision of Isaiah. What follows is his personal vision of what he saw. Hosea has received a message from God, and he is going to convey that to his audience. Um, I want to stop here because this is talking about prophecy. Who can give me a basic definition? Let's build a little definition. What is prophecy? Something that will happen. Something that will happen, so it is true. It will happen. Something that's foretold to happen in the future. Good. What else? Think very basic. I said part of it. The proclamation of God's word. Okay, it comes from God. It's a message from God. I'm sorry. It's truth. Okay. Prophecy is a new revelation. It's new information. It's new information that God has given to someone, and he gives it to a specific prophet, and he empowers and enables that prophet to deliver that message accurately and clearly to an intended audience. Okay? It's new information that's given to a prophet, and that prophet is given the ability to convey that to an intended audience. Hosea has an intended audience. It's the northern kingdom of Israel. And I bring that up because there are people today who say that they are prophets. Have you seen these guys? If you watch TBN or Daystar or Eternal, go on YouTube and just type in Christian prophet. And you'll see all these people who say they have a word from the Lord. And they use this phrase. One guy recently, in March, said that in the month of May, God told him, there was going to be a major storm in Anchorage, Alaska. May was a beautiful month in Anchorage, Alaska. He didn't actually hear from God. He's not actually a prophet. And we know that because Deuteronomy 18 gives us a test. And a couple of people have already said it. True prophecy is always true. God doesn't make mistakes. His prophets always convey the information accurately. They always get it right. And in fact, Deuteronomy 18, I think it's verse 20, he says, if they don't get it right, they die. It's a good reason to make sure you get it right, isn't it? That's the first test, is what they say, did they tell the truth? Did it actually happen the way they said it would? The second test is found in Deuteronomy 13, verses 1 through 5. And that test is basically saying, do they point you to Yahweh? Do they give you true doctrine, or do they tell you some weird thing? If you listen to the people on YouTube or on TBN, they say some weird stuff. Do they point you to Yahweh? Hosea is a prophet of Yahweh. He has been commissioned by God to give a specific revelation to the northern kingdom of Israel. And he has been empowered to convey that message accurately and clearly. Israel had become a nation that was politically and morally corrupt. We're going to talk about the political history today. And his prophecies, his book, include not only promises of judgment for their sin, but also promises of restoration. And he puts them side by side. 
That's the word of the Lord, literally the word of Yahweh. Let's talk about the man, the man Hosea. Hosea 1.1 again, the word of the Lord which came to Hosea, the son of Bere. If you want to say it more accurately, it's, I'm going to say it slowly, Ba-e-ri. Ba-e-ri. It's actually three syllables. And that's the name I want to start with. He's the son of Bari. People have asked, who is this guy? Who is Bari? What do we know about him? Other than the fact that he's the father of a prophet, can we learn anything about Bari from Scripture? Well, some have said in Genesis 26, verse 34, there is another guy mentioned who is called Bari. His name is spelt the exact same way. Could this be Hosea's father? This man is Bari the Hittite in Genesis 26. Could this be his father? I don't think so. Moses wrote Genesis around 1445 BC, over 700 years before Hosea came around. If Bari the Hittite was his father, he was around for quite some time, and those lifespans ended after the flood. So I don't think that's his father. That's not the same guy. Well, then Jewish tradition says that he is mentioned in 1 Chronicles 5, verse 6. I don't think that works either. It's within the same time period, so it's feasible. But the problem is even Hebrew lexicons, people who know Hebrew a lot better than I do, say this is a completely different word, it's a completely different name. So I don't think that's the same guy either. The reality is, we don't know anything about Bari. We do. We know the time because of the other names. Yeah. Okay, so all we know about Bari is what we see here, right? We know he's the father of Hosea, and we know the time period in which Hosea lived. That's all we know about him. And so that brings us to a question. Why in the world would Hosea include the name of his father if we're not going to be told anything about his father? What do you guys think? It's to date him. It's to date him? Okay. But if we don't know who he is or where he's from or where he lived, it's hard to date him. But you're, you're on it. You're, you're right next to it. It was traditional, wasn't it? It was traditional, yeah. Why? Yes. Good. Yes. That's part of it. Yes, sir. Okay. He, he lived in the northern kingdom. Um, you guys are all on it. You're getting it. There you go. That's what I was looking for. Yeah, so all these answers are right. By giving his father's name, it proves that Hosea is an actual person. He's not someone who's been made up. There, when you go through church history, you'll find a group of writings called the Pseudepigrapha. And it just means written under, under a false name, like the Gospel of Thomas, written a couple hundred years after Thomas died. And they stuck Thomas's name on the top of their writing so that that way they would have credibility. By saying his name is Hosea and giving his father's name, he proves he's a real person in real time and space. He's not some made-up guy. And then that brings us to his son, Bari's son, is Hosea. His name actually means help or deliverance. It was a very common name. It's the name from which we get Yeshua. It's the name we get Joshua from. 
It's the name that Jesus comes from. It means help or deliverance. And like his father, Hosea the prophet is only mentioned here in this text. Nowhere else in Scripture do we have a reference to Hosea the prophet. The New Testament, as I put on your handout, the New Testament alludes and cites his book, but nowhere else do we have any direct mention of Hosea himself or are we given any information about his life or who he was as a person. If we want to learn about Hosea the prophet, we have to go to his book. So what does his book say about him? His book says that he is likely a resident of the northern kingdom. And that is who he's writing to, the northern kingdom of Israel. Um, I need some more people who would like to read. We're all in Hosea, so you don't have to go find random books. I need someone to read Hosea 1.5 and Hosea 1.5, Hosea 2.15. Okay? And Hosea 10.14. In the back, Hosea 10.14. How do we know that he is from the northern kingdom of Israel? Well, first, Hosea demonstrates a knowledge of topography. He understands and he knows the landscape of the northern kingdom. And you'll hear this in these verses when he's talking about various valleys in these areas. Um, Hosea 1.5. The Valley of Jezreel. Um, Hosea 2.15, he talks about another valley. Oh. There you go. So he knows about the valleys. He knows about the landscape of Israel. He also demonstrates a knowledge of the history of the northern kingdom. Uh, Hosea 10, verse 14. He's giving historical context, and he's pointing back to history and saying, this is going to happen again in a similar way when it happened here. He understands the topography of Israel. He understands the history. He also understands the current events and the circumstances that are in Israel. If you go to Hebrews, if you go to Hosea chapter 4, look at verse 15. Though you, Israel, play the harlot, do not let Judah become guilty. And do not go to Gilgal or go up to Beth Haven and take the oath as the Lord lives. He knows what's going on. He's saying the people in Israel are engaging in idolatry. That's what he means by harlotry. Chapter 5, verse 1. Hear this, O priest. Give heed, O house of Israel. Listen, O house of the king, for the judgment applies to you. He knows what the priests are doing. He knows what is going on in the house of of the king of Israel. Chapter 5, verse 13. When Ephraim... Ephraim is a reference to the northern kingdom of Israel. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to King Jerob. But he is unable to heal you and to cure you of your wound. He knows the political maneuvering of the nation of Israel. 
he sees what the, the politicians and the king is doing, and he knows that the king is going to these other nations for help. Uh, chapter 6, verse 8. Gilead is a city of wrongdoers, tracked with bloody footprints. And as raiders wait for a man, so a band of priests murder on the way to Shechem. Shechem is the, was at one time the capital of Israel. He knows about the events that are occurring on the road to Shechem. He demonstrates a very clear understanding of the landscape, of the history, and the events that are happening in the northern kingdom. But I think the best evidence to prove that he is a resident of the northern kingdom comes in chapter 7, verse 5. If you look at verse 1, he says, God speaking, when I would heal Israel. He's talking about Israel. He gets down to verse 5. On that uh, excuse me, on the day of our king, the princes became sick with the heat of wine. He talks about the king of Israel, and he uses that first-person pronoun. Our king. It's your king, and it's my king, right? He would only say it that way if he was actually living in Israel. Otherwise, he would say, on the day of your king, because he doesn't live there. That's not his king. Okay? So he lived in Israel. He knew the people of Israel. He knew the circumstances and the history of Israel. What was his occupation other than being a prophet? What did he do for a living? How did he make his money? Was he an IT specialist, a car mechanic, a pilot? What did he do? Well, some say that he was a baker. And they're not just making this up. They have a reason for saying it. Uh, look at chapter 7, verse 4. He says, they are all adulterers, like an oven heated by the baker who ceases to stir up the fire from the kneading of the dough until it is leavened. Go down to verse 8. Ephraim mixes himself with the nations. Ephraim has become a cake not turned. And they say he's a baker because he's making references and he's using illustrations that a baker would make. But before you jump on the bandwagon that he was a baker, there are also people who say he was a farmer. Maybe he was a farmer that liked to bake. I don't know. How do they say he's a farmer? Go over to chapter 9, verse 13. Listen for the agrarian language. He's using uh, things that farmers would talk about. Uh, chapter 9, verse 13, he says, Ephraim, as I have seen, is planted in a pleasant meadow like Tyre. Uh, jump down to verse 16. Ephraim is stricken, their root is dried up. They will bear no fruit, even though they bear children. Ephraim is planted, their root is dried up, they will not have fruit. This is the kind of language that a farmer would use. Jump, jump over to chapter 10, verse 12. Sow with a view to righteousness, reap in accordance with kindness, Break up the fallow ground of your heart. Again, he's using very agrarian language that makes people think he must be a farmer. So which of these two should we go with? He's a preacher, obviously, because he's using all these metaphors. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> hey, Mike, if you can't hear Mike in the back, he said he's a preacher, obviously, because he's using metaphors. He's the Charles Spurgeon of the Old Testament. He's really good with metaphors. We'll talk about that in a little while. Well, the honest reality here is um, 
both of these jobs, if he was a baker or a farmer, both of these jobs would make Hosea a peasant. And I'm not criticizing peasants, but that's a little bit of a problem. Because if he's a peasant, he wouldn't likely know the history, the political maneuvering. He wouldn't be as in touch with what's going on politically. And he probably wouldn't have the education that he obviously has. And the reason I say he was obviously educated is because Hosea was a man of many words. What I mean by that is Hosea was a master literary craftsman. Mike just mentioned he was using all these metaphors. This is one of the reasons why Hosea is fun to read, but this is also one of the reasons why Hosea is really hard to read. But he is really good with words. Like the psalmist, he can paint a picture with words. And his illustrations and allusions are really incredible. And I'm going to show you some of them. Uh, Chapter 6, verse 4, he's describing the love and the faithfulness of the nation of Israel. And look how he describes it. He says, what shall I do with you, O Ephraim? Again, Ephraim is the northern kingdom. What shall I do with you, O Judah, the southern kingdom? For your loyalty is like a morning cloud, and like the dew which goes away early. You wake up in the morning, it's all cloudy, and by 10 o'clock the sun comes out and all those clouds are gone. You wake up early, there's dew on the ground, and within an hour it's gone. And that's the loyalty of the nation of Israel just fleeting and passing. It comes and it goes. Uh, Chapter 7, verse 11, he talks about Israel as being a senseless bird that's just wandering away from God. Uh, Verse 11, he says, So Ephraim has become like a silly dove without sense. Because Israel was going back and forth to these various nations looking for help from Egypt and Assyria and just wandering back and forth, but they would never go and turn to Yahweh. Uh, Chapter 9, verse 16, we looked at this earlier. That's the one where he says the root is dried up and they bear no fruit. Again, a very graphic way to illustrate their spiritual condition. He also uses it to describe God. Chapter 2, verse 2, he pictures God as being a faithful husband. Notice he says, contend with your mother, contend, for she is not my wife and I am not her husband. And let her put away her harlotry from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. Mother here is a reference to the spiritual and political leaders of Israel. And God is saying, I am not connected to them. They have no part of me. I am not part of them. Chapter 11, verse 1. God is described not as a husband, but instead he's described as a father. 11 verse 1, when Israel was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. God here is pictured as a father. Chapter 14 verse 4, God is pictured as a physician. He says, I will heal their apostasy, I will love them freely. Heal there is a medical term for healing that a physician would do. Chapter 7 verse 12, God is pictured as a fowler who catches birds. When they go, I will spread my net over them. I will bring them down like the birds of the sky. This isn't a very pleasant idea. This is talking about judgment. Chapter 13, verses 7 and 8, God is pictured as a lion and a bear. Um, And that's, I mean, we were talking about graphic language. 
13, 7, 8, So I will be like a lion to them. Like a leopard, I will lie and wait by the wayside. I will encounter them like a bear robbed of her cubs, and I will tear open their chests. Graphic, clear illustrations of what he intends. When you hear a, a mother bear robbed of her cubs, do you think of a soft, cuddly little teddy bear? Very descriptive, very easy to understand what he means. One of the things that makes Jose difficult to really follow is that he changes these metaphors quickly. There we have a lion and a bear. And he changes with one verse. Back in chapter 7, uh, verse 4 through 7, we're not going to look at all of these, but notice verse 7, all of them are like a hot oven, or hot like an oven. That's talking about their debauchery and their immorality. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, I got ahead of myself. Go back up to verse 4. Verse 4, they are all adulterers, like an oven heated by a baker. Uh, verse 6, for their hearts are like an oven as they approach their plotting. Verse 7, hot like an oven. They are hot with immorality and debauchery. And notice verse 8, he changes the metaphor instantly. It goes from they're an oven, Ephraim mixes himself with the nations, Ephraim has become a cake not turned. They go from being the oven to being the thing in the oven that is about to burn. He changes his metaphor and his illustration almost instantly. And you will see that as we go through the book of Hosea. He will go from judgment in one verse and the very next verse he's talking about the love of God. Go back to chapter 1. I want to show you one of those. Chapter 1, verse 9 we will talk about this one next week, and it's a really, really great passage. Verse 9, he says, And the Lord said, Name him Lo-Ami, which literally means not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. Does that strike anybody? You are not my people. Remember when they went into the wilderness? You will be my people, and I will be your God. And now he reverses it. But look at verse 10. Yet the number of the sons of Israel would be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it is said to them, you are not my people, it will be said to them, you are the sons of the living God. Verse 9, a passage about judgment and the consequences of sin. Verse 10, a reinstatement of the promises already made to Israel and a promise of future blessing. Hosea takes his message and he distills it down to the simplest parts. And then he puts those two things that seem contradictory, he puts them side by side to each other. And he puts them side by side to make the most stark and obvious contrast between them. On one side you have the judgment of God and the immorality of Israel, and on the other side you have the love of God and the faithfulness of Yahweh. And the two are put side by side. One commentator said, rather than distill his message down, rather than distill his message down to a logically consistent whole, he confronts the reader with diverse truths presented in a form that is as stark and unqualified as possible. It is a rhetorical strategy that forces the reader to reckon with the full impact of every word. His goal is to leave you shocked. 
He wants you to be shocked by the sinfulness of Israel, and he wants you to be shocked and astounded by the love and the compassion of God. And like I said, this does make Israel much, not Israel, makes Hosea much more difficult to understand, but also demonstrates that Hosea was a man of many words. He was a literary craftsman. He was a man of many words, but he was also a man of the word. His Bible was a little bit smaller than yours. All he had was the Pentateuch, probably. He may have had some of the other early books, but more than likely he just had the Pentateuch. And he knew the Pentateuch really well. And he stands on it as he writes his book. And he uses it and alludes to it all the time. Um, we don't have time to go through each of these directly. In uh, Hosea 1.10, I just read that. The number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea. Anyone think of a part of Genesis that, that sounds familiar? Chapter 12? Abrahamic covenant? Yeah. Uh, it's also referenced back to 22.17 when he says, uh, speaking of his descendants, and as the sand which is on the seashore. He's referencing back the promises that had already been made. And he's alluding back to the book of Genesis. Uh, chapter 2, verse 18. In that day I will also make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, the birds of the sky, and the creeping things of the ground. You hear those three groups? Have you heard those before? Where'd you hear them? Creation, Adam and Eve. It's a reference back to the creation account. The one I really want to point you to is out of Genesis 11, not Genesis 11, Hosea 11, verse 8. This, I think, really demonstrates his knowledge of the Scriptures. Hosea 11, verse 8. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I surrender you, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? Anybody know those last two references? Adma and Zeboim? They are from Genesis. Adma and Zeboim. Um, Zeboim and Adma are both cities that were in the plain with Sodom and Gomorrah. This is a reference back to Genesis 19. Genesis 14, verse 2, it says that they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, and with Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, and Shemeber, king of Zeboim. Adma and Zeboim are towns or cities in the plain with Sodom and Gomorrah. Deuteronomy 29-23, we find out these cities were destroyed. All its land is brimstone and salt, a burning waste, unsown and unproductive, and no grass grows in it. Like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and in his wrath. You know, if I wanted to make an allusion to Genesis 19, it would be to Sodom and Gomorrah. He knows his Pentateuch really well. And he makes a reference back to Zeboim and Adma, a place that we, most of us, wouldn't go. He also alludes back to Exodus. Uh, you can see that in uh, Hosea 13, 4 and 5. There's several others where he makes allusions back to Exodus, but we're going to run out of time if I, if I go to those. So Hosea was a man of the word. So we've learned something about Hosea. 
We learn he's a resident of the Northern Kingdom. We learned he knows something about agriculture. He knows something about baking. He's a very well-educated man. He knows how to use words. He's a literary craftsman, and he's a man of the word. He spends some time in scripture. Okay, we know something about the man. So when did he live? Hosea 1.1 again. The word of the Lord which came to Hosea, the son of Bere, during the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. Um, history tells us that these kings lived and reigned between 790 B.C. and 686 B.C. Um, on your chart in the back, you will see dates on here. Understand that these events described happened roughly 3,000 years ago. So depending on what commentary you look at, some of these dates will change a little bit. But these are good ballpark estimates on when these guys reigned, and it'll help you understand the chronology. I'm going to go through the political history of Israel so you can understand how the nation was divided, and you can understand the context that you're going to jump into when you get to the book of Hosea. Um, for some of you, some of this will be review. For some of you, this, some of this will be new. And for others, all of this will be new. But I want to make sure we're all in the same, same plane, okay? Um, I was going to say something else, and I forgot what it was. Okay, let's get started here. This is the political history. We're going to move fairly quickly, and I'm going to skip a lot. There's a t I'm going to skip entire centuries. On your handout, you'll see a couple kings that are uh, highlighted and made bold. The bold highlights are the kings mentioned in Hosea 1.1. Okay? The ones on the left are the, from the north. The ones on the right are from the south. Okay? As I'm going through this political history, I'm going to name some of these kings, have this open or out, and make some notes, and you'll be able to follow along. All right. Let's actually get there. The book of Judges, you guys remember uh, Abraham is called Genesis 12, Genesis 15. He has sons. His grandson, Israel, or Jacob, has 12 sons. Israel and his 12 sons, they go into Egypt because of the famine. They stay there, beginning of Exodus. They have grown to be a mighty nation. They are so great that the pharaoh of Egypt is now afraid of them. So he puts them in hard bondage. All the way through, I think, chapter 13 of Exodus is the story of God delivering them. Chapter 20, you have um, the law that was given to tell them how to live. Leviticus tells them uh, what they are to do to worship. Numbers describes the judgment on the first generation after the Exodus. They're walking, marching through the wilderness for 40 years, and they all die. Deuteronomy is five sermons given to the second generation after the Exodus. And he's repeating the law because the first generation that received the law, they're all dead. And now the second generation doesn't have that memory. And so Moses repeats the law to them and reminds them of it and says, when you go into the land, the promised land, make sure you obey. Book of Joshua, they go into the land. They start conquering some of the cities. God delivers all those cities into their hands. Do they, deliver, do they take the whole land? Do they remove all the inhabitants like they're told to do? They keep a lot of them around. And they start intermarrying with them. They start 
using syncretism and combining their false worship with the worship of Yahweh. And this continues all the way through the book of Joshua. Joshua 24, Joshua's getting old, he's about to die. He calls the nation of Israel and he asks them to recommit their lives to serving Yahweh. And they said, we will serve Yahweh. You remember when he said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord? And the nation of Israel replied back, yes, we will too. We are going to commit ourselves to Yahweh. That takes us into the book of Judges. There were no kings in Israel. And now you have the third generation after the Exodus. Two generations removed from Moses. And in Judges 1, it says, they did not know the Lord. And they did evil in the sight of the Lord. And the book of Judges is all about them running off into sin, God judging them, and then delivering them through a judge. At the end of the book of Judges, you find this statement. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And now the search is on for a new king. Israel is going to demand a king, and God is going to give them a king. First Samuel, we find that God raises up a guy named Saul. First Samuel 9.2 says he was a choice and handsome man. He stood taller than everybody else. And his appearances are mentioned a couple of times in this process. But he looked good, he just wasn't very good. That was in 1 Samuel 9. By 1 Samuel 15, the prophet Samuel tells Saul, God's done with you. You're not going to be king over Israel anymore. Because you're disobedient. You don't listen. You don't obey. And then God raises up a guy named David. And the rest of 1 Samuel describes the conflict between David and Saul. And eventually Saul is going to die and you get to 2 Samuel. David is now pictured. He comes front and center. And you find the rise of David, the rule of David, his victories, his military conquests, the united kingdom under David. And you also learn about his sin and his failures. Well, David has a son. His first son with Bathsheba died. The next one, his name is Solomon. Turn over to 1 Kings real quick. First Kings chapter 11. Solomon was said to be the wisest man that ever lived. But Solomon made some really foolish decisions. He made some really bad decisions. And those decisions are depicted in 1 Kings 11, verses 4 through 8. And I'm just going to kind of hit this because I am running out of time rapidly. Solomon was old. His wives turned his heart away from the Lord to other gods. And he was not wholly devoted to the Lord. He had, what, 700 wives, 700 concubines, 300 wives. Verse 5, for Solomon went after the Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidians, and after Milcom, the detestable idol of the Ammonites. Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Verse 7, that Solomon built a high place for, the, for Chemish, the detestable idol of Moab, on the mountain which is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the detestable idol of the sons of Ammon. Thus also he did for all his foreign wives who burned incense in, in sacrifice to their gods. Not only was he a polygamist, but he was an idolater. 
And he did that to satisfy these foreign wives that he had married. When God told him, don't do either one of them. And so God brings judgment on Solomon, verses 9 and 10. Now the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned away from the Lord. The God of Israel who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he did not observe what the Lord commanded. And the Lord was going to bring a swift consequence for Solomon. And it's important that we understand that this was a consequence for Solomon. What was that consequence? Verse 11, because you have done this and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father, David, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant, David, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. Why did the nation of Israel divide into two? It was a judgment of God upon that nation. And God tells Solomon, I'm not going to tear the kingdom apart in your reign. I'm going to tear it apart in your son's reign. But I'm going to leave to your son one tribe. That's important. He's going to leave to him one tribe. And the division of the nation of Israel had been in the works for a while. This wasn't an instantaneous division. It was building over time. Um, I hope you guys can see this in the back. The various colors are the different tribes of Israel. And I want you to notice, I wish I had a pointer or some way to point this out. If you look down here, this big green spot up here, that's Judah. Simeon is right here. Simeon kind of lost his identity and they kind of got melded into the tribe of Judah. But the predominant tribe in the south was Judah. Where are all the other tribes? To the north. Judah is cut off in a sense. They're physically isolated. To the west were the Philistines. Um, here's another map. I hope you guys can see this. You see Judah at the bottom. To the west is Philistine. To the right is the Dead Sea. To the south is the Negev. In the Negev, there are nomadic tribes that are hostile to, the, to Judah. And all the other tribes are north of them. Physically and psychologically cut off. Separated from the other tribes. And this separation, this view that Judah is separate from these others, while not official because the king reigned over all of them, it was apparent even as early as 1 Samuel 11, when Saul numbered his army. Listen to how he described the army. He numbered them in Bezek, and the sons of Israel, 300,000. Israel describes the 10 northern tribes. And the men of Judah, 30,000. Even as early as Saul, Judah was seen as being somewhat distinct from the other tribes. In 1 Kings 4, Solomon levies a tax. The tax is for the support of the king and his household. And he lists the tribes of the north. But it seems like he leaves the, the tribe of Judah out of the tax. And he doesn't tax the tribe of Judah. He's from the tribe of Judah. He lives in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. 
All the other tribes in the north are taxed. Judah is not. When Solomon dies, his son, Rehoboam. Rehoboam is the first guy on your handout at the very top. His son, Rehoboam, takes over, becomes king, and he apparently recognizes that there's a problem. There's some division here. Judah and Israel aren't really getting along. And so instead of being coronated as king in Jerusalem, where he's going to reign, he instead decides to travel north. And he goes to a city called Shechem. Anybody remember what I said about Shechem? It's the capital that would become the capital of Israel. It's also the place where Joshua and the nation of Israel recommitted themselves to the Lord. Rehoboam goes to Shechem. And he is coronated there in what would become the capital city of Israel. And it is believed he did this just to try to maintain some unity with the people of the north so that they would understand they're still part of his kingdom. Well, while he's there, the northern tribes send a delegation to Rehoboam. And this delegation is led by a guy named Jeroboam, who's at the top of your list. Jeroboam is leading this delegation. And they go to Rehoboam and ask Rehoboam to lighten the burden. Take it easy on us. Your father Solomon was kind of hard on us. Would you lighten our load? Would you be a little more fair to the northern tribes? And you guys remember the story. Rehoboam had two groups of advisors. He had the older guys that were advisors to his father. And they advised, you really ought to listen to them and lighten their load. And then he had some young guys who were his buddies. And the young guys said, no, you got power now. Stick it to them. And Rehoboam said, I like what my buddy said. And he went with them. And he didn't lighten the load. And he put more burdens on them. And the northern tribes had a very clear response. It's in 1 Kings 12, 16. Here's their answer, or 15 and 16. When all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king saying, What portion do we have in David? Rehoboam is the son of David. We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse, to your tents, O Israel. Now look after your own house, David. So Israel departed to their tents. The northern tribes said, We are done with the line of David. We're done with the kings of Judah. We're not going to be involved in this anymore. And they all left under the leadership of Jeroboam. They leave Rehoboam and they go back to their tents. And Rehoboam realized he had something of a problem. He realized his kingdom was about to rip in two. And so he sends Adoram, a guy named Adoram, who was the chief overseer of putting people to work. And he sends him there as an emissary. Well, the northern tribes respond by stoning him to death. They don't want to talk. So Rehoboam realizes, okay, I might be in danger here. I need to leave. And he gets in his chariot and he hightails it out of Shechem back to Jerusalem. And when he gets back to Jerusalem... He realizes he has a problem, the kingdom's about to be divided, and he does what every good young king is supposed to do. It's time to go to war. And he builds his army up, gets them all together, and he's about to leave to go fight and try to maintain his kingdom. Well, God sends 
a prophet to him named Shemaiah. And Shemaiah reminds Rehoboam, this kingdom was promised to be torn in two by God. It was promised to your father. You are not going to stop this. You need to stay right where you are. You're not going to fight anyone. And to his credit, Rehoboam said, you're right. And he told his men to go home, and he didn't go fight. In the north, the northern tribes then appoint Jeroboam, again, that's the guy at the top of your list, as their king. And Rehoboam returns back to Jerusalem to be king over the southern kingdom. That's what it looks like. The southern kingdom is called Judah because its predominant population is from the tribe of Judah. The northern kingdom is called Israel because it is the ten tribes of Israel which comes from the ten sons of Israel. Rehoboam returns back to Judah. The southern kingdom remains under the rule of Davidic kings. The sons of David continue to reign in Judah. That's in the south. In the north, Jeroboam proves himself to be a wicked king. And if you want to know how wicked he is, you just read through First and Second Kings, and what you find is that they continually point to Jeroboam as the standard of wickedness. If you want to know how wicked you are, compare yourself to Jeroboam, that'll tell you. He brought in all sorts of false worship. His dynasty lasted only two generations, roughly 24 years, he and his son. And after him, the royal throne of Israel would go through five different dynasties in 210 years. One king after another. Jeroboam was actually rather smart. He was shrewd. He realized that people in the north would want to go down to Jerusalem to worship. And so he said, I don't want to do that because if I do that, then they'll start having memories of the United Kingdom and then they'll want to go back and rejoin Judah and I won't be king anymore. So he comes up with this plan. They're going to want to go down there during the feasts. He's up in Shechem. And the road that leads from Shechem south, there's a little town called Bethel. And in order to get to Jerusalem, you go through Bethel. There was another town on another road called Dan. It was a major thoroughfare to get south. He builds temples in Dan and Bethel and encourages people to worship, not in Jerusalem at the temple, but to worship there so they won't go back and rejoin with Judah. And there he sets up golden calves in both places. 1 Kings 12, 28, he set up two golden calves, one in each. And listen to what he said about them. He said, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold your gods, speaking of the golden calf. O Israel, that brought you up from the land of Egypt. It's the same phrase from Exodus 32. And he encourages them to worship a golden calf, and he calls it Yahweh. Now you have these two divided kingdoms. They're much smaller than they used to be. They don't have the power or the influence that they used to have. And now we're going to fast forward roughly 200 years. You have king after king. If you just look at the chart, you have king after king after king after king. Smaller nations mean they are weaker. They have less power, less influence. And so other nations begin to think that we can now exert influence on these two smaller kingdoms. The Arameans, the Egyptians, the Assyrians, 
all sought to control and influence these two kingdoms. And by the time you get to the book of Hosea, these other nations are starting to diminish. The Assyrians, the Arameans, the Egyptians, they're under weak leadership. The Assyrians are under a weak king who can barely maintain his kingdom. And this provided an opportune time for Israel and Judah to regain their strength and get some economic standing. And around 793 B.C., Jeroboam II, the first guy listed in Hosea 1, comes to power, and he is really good. And he ushers in a period of economic prosperity and military strength for the northern kingdom. Walter Kaiser said in less than 25 years, Jeroboam II was able to take a nation that was just about ready to die and turn it into one of the great powers of his day. And the same thing happened in the south. A guy named Uzziah reigned for 52 years. He built up the military power of Judah, and he actually went and started doing military campaigns in Philistine and in Arabia to try to expand their power and influence. This was the high point for both nations. Jeroboam II would die in 753, and his successors were nowhere near as talented as he was. His son, Zechariah, also on your list, was assassinated six months into being king. He was assassinated by a guy named Shalem. Shalem then takes over as king. And he reigned for a month before he was assassinated. These are the northern kings. He was assassinated by a guy named Minaham. Minaham was also a weak leader. And because of his weakness, he was becoming more and more subservient to Assyria. Assyria was now on the rise. They had a new king. I'm going to mess his name up really bad. Uh, Tilgath-Pileser III. He's also called Pool, P-U-L, um, in 2 Kings 15:19. And Pool, the Assyrian king, builds the Neo-Assyrian Empire, and he patches together all these groups, and he builds this empire, and he begins to go out and invade and ravage other nations. He had two modus operandi. I'm going to come over, and I'm going to scare you to death until you pay me, or I'm going to take over. Well, Minahan was weak. He didn't want the destruction. So he paid him off. And he paid off the king of Assyria and said, we'll become a vassal. We'll just do whatever you want. Just don't take us over. Minahan eventually died. His son, Pekahiah, would ascend only to be assassinated by a guy named Pekah. Those are, again, on your list. So Minahan's son is assassinated. Pekah comes in. Pekah was strong enough that he could be the sole ruler of Israel. No, other, no one else tried to take over. But he wasn't a match for Pul, the Assyrian king. Pekah tried to build an alliance with the Aramean king, Rezin. He didn't go to Yahweh and say, Hey, Yahweh, we've got this enemy who's coming to kill us. Would you do something? Instead, he goes to the Arameans and said, Hey, King Rezin, would you help us fight off the Assyrians? Well, Poole's not very happy with that, so he decides, I've had enough. And in 732, he attacks Israel, and he reduces Israel to nothing more than a vassal state of the Assyrian Empire. They're still there, they're still an empire, they're still a nation, they still have a king, but the king is going to be subservient to 
the Assyrians. In the south, Judah wasn't doing much better. They tried to set up under Ahaz, um, excuse me, they did not join the anti-Assyrian coalition. Their king Ahaz instead just said, look, we're not going to join this coalition, we're going to get killed. He went into the temple of Yahweh and raided it for gold and silver and used that to pay off the Assyrian king. So just like the king of the north, we're just going to pay you to keep you, keep you out of here. Well, Pul died. The Assyrian king died. And the king of the south, a guy named Hosea, no, I'm sorry, king of the north, Hosea, uh, decided, you know what, we're tired of being a vassal state, and I'm tired of sending all this money to the Assyrian king, and the new king, he's not very strong, so you know what, we're going to stop paying him. And we're going to assert our sovereignty. And he calls upon the nation of Egypt for help. And he goes to King So of Egypt and says, Hey, would you help us fend off the Assyrian king? Well, the new Assyrian king was not very happy about this attempt. His name was Shalmaneser V. Shalmaneser was not happy that the northern kingdom went to Egypt and they refused to pay him. And in 722, Assyria invades the northern kingdom, destroys the capital of Israel, and deports its residents in 722. And Egypt, the people they went to to get help, they did nothing. Didn't work. Okay, how many of you are thoroughly confused? I have a couple of people shaking their heads. Yes, I know that's confusing. Okay, but what I want you to understand is this division, there's a lot of political maneuvering that's happening. And the key points here is the division of Israel was intended by God. It was brought about by God. And these kings, instead of going to Yahweh for help, instead of looking to God for help, they're looking to these other nations. And now... We're going to look as we go through, we're out of time today, but as we go through the book of Hosea, we're going to see the moral condition and the spiritual condition. But you need to have some basic understanding of the political realities of Israel. All right? We are over time. If you guys have any questions, please see me afterwards. I'll be happy to answer what I can. All right, let me pray real quick and we'll, we'll be done. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the book of Hosea. We thank you that you have um, sent men like Hosea who can speak for you clearly and authoritatively. And we just ask that you would help us to grow in our knowledge of your word, that we can be men and women of the word as Hosea was. We ask that you would bless our time of worship that would be pleasing to you. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.